Well, as you find your seat, if you would open your Bible, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. We are continuing our series on the book of Hebrews. It's a series entitled, Jesus is Better. Let me ask you here at the beginning, how many times this last week did you ask for help? Needing help, it is a common thing. Perhaps you needed help with a simple task, like carrying something. Perhaps you needed help with a device. You know, I noticed that on my computer, no matter what program or app is up, it, there's always a little at, a indicator at the top that says help, that I can click on and get help. Perhaps you needed help repairing something you couldn't repair yourself or finding something you couldn't find or knowing something you didn't know. It's common to need help. But there are few things that are probably more disappointing to us than we're trying to get help and we just can't get it. I read a news story that last week there was a woman who took one of those enclosed ski lifts at a ski resort in California And she got on, and it's moving, and all of a sudden it shut off, and she was stranded. And so she saw some people, some of the workers, walking below the ski lift, and she yelled until she lost her voice. No one heard her. And the next morning when they started the ski lift again, she came off, and obviously she was traumatized by that. She desperately needed help, and she couldn't get it. Perhaps you've been to a doctor and felt that way, or a mechanic. You went, you explained the issue as best as you can, but you left without the help you needed. Few things are more disappointing than needing help and not getting it. But then there's those moments where a person is acquainted with the help we need. I mean, imagine you go to the doctor And you start sharing with the doctor what's going on. The doctor says to you, oh yeah, I have that same pain. Or yeah, I've had headaches just like you're describing. Or he says, yeah, you know, I I was sick recently with that same sickness. Here, let me help you. That is such a, a comfort to know not only receiving help, but receiving help from someone who is personally acquainted with our situation. Well, this is the purpose of Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. Jesus became like us to help us. Jesus became like us to help us. It says in verse 14 of Hebrews 2, it says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. It says in verse 17, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. And It says in verse 18, For because He has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became like us to help us. And the book of Hebrews, if you remember back, I keep drawing us back to who this was written to. The book of Hebrews was written to a church that was facing difficulty for their faith in Christ. 
And almost overnight, it had become difficult to be a Christian, to follow Christ. Persecution has a a certain loneliness about it. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews says, yes, Jesus became like you in order to help you in that loneliness and in that suffering. He knows, he's acquainted, and he can help you. It was written for this original church and it's preserved for us today to communicate those same truths. Jesus helps us in ways that we feel the need for help, but he helps us in many ways, as we'll see in the passage, that are beyond even what we realize. So, if you have your Bible open, Hebrews 2, let's begin reading in verse 5. This is God's Word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified All have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
as we come out of a week, not necessarily knowing what everyone experienced this week, but as we come together, I am confident that many, most, all of us need help. And we may not be asking for it or necessarily aware of it, or we may be keenly aware of it. And Lord, thank You not only for speaking this truth and directing us, but we do thank You that Jesus was made like us to help us. And I pray this morning You would help us to receive Your help. I pray, Lord, You would posture us to, to allow the truth of Your Word and allow the truth of Jesus becoming a man to affect every area of our lives. Lord, from the youngest here to the oldest, receiving help from the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise You. We thank You. And Lord, we, we pray this morning, just as we were talking about inviting others to Alpha, Lord, we need help in being about Your mission. As we think about opposition, Lord, any of us this week who faced opposition or who even just faced a cold shoulder in talking about spiritual things or even sharing the gospel, we pray, Lord, we need help. We need courage. We need strength. Lord, for the most dire here among us today, we pray that You would help us to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank You that You're eager. You didn't just perform the help we needed. You, you tell us about it so that we would, we would get it. We'd receive it. And so we want to do that this morning. We praise You. And we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we begin, if we zoom out just for a moment and consider the big picture of the book of Hebrews, there are two main points that have been made so far. In Hebrews 1, we're told that God spoke by His Son, and that is followed by a command at the beginning of Hebrews 2, pay attention. Pay careful attention. So God has spoken, pay attention. That was the first point. And then the second point is in the verses we're reading this morning. God came. Jesus became a man. And this is going to be followed, we'll see this next week in Hebrews 3, by a command, consider Jesus. So God spoke, pay attention. God came, consider Jesus. That's chapters 1 and 2. And so Jesus' humanity is one of the things that is unpacked in the verses that we just read. And it is one of these things that is meant to affect our day-to-day lives. I don't know if you've ever wondered or asked yourself, why did Jesus become a man? Why didn't He just save us like that without becoming a man? Well, that's what Hebrews 2 is seeking to unpack. Why did Jesus become like us? He became like us to help us. And Hebrews 2 is going to unpack so many ways, but I've kind of brought it under two main headings. The first is that Jesus became like us to help represent us. Jesus represents us. 
This representation, we see this in verses 5 through 9. Let's look again. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Well, in classic fashion, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he makes his point by first quoting the Old Testament. This is what we saw in chapter 1. We're going to see this many more times. In verse 6, he quotes from Psalm 8. David, King David, wrote Psalm 8, marveling that God considers humans. It really is amazing. He is so high. He is so holy. What is man that you are mindful of him? And then David acknowledges something that is unique to man, that's not unique to angels. Angels don't have this. Man reflects God's image. And man has the ability to extend God's rule. That's given in the creation mandate. We were made like God, and we were made kind of under rulers of God. This is why he said, to name creation and go subdue it and all of these things. He didn't give that ability to angels. He gave it to man. But in verse 8, the writer points something out. Look with me. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Because of the fall, in Genesis 3, mankind does not perfectly reflect the image of God. Mankind does not exercise God's rule as God intended. And so verse 8, it's a nice way. It's a nice way of saying, yeah, Adam and Eve messed up. And we've messed up ever since. We've been given this privilege. We've been given this responsibility of reflecting what God is like and ruling over His creation But we've blown it. And so in verse 9, it gives us the solution. This is the very first time that Jesus is mentioned in in Hebrews. Namely, Jesus. Psalm 8 and the disappointment of mankind failing was pointing us, preparing us for Jesus. Jesus perfectly reflects God's image. Jesus perfectly exercises God's rule as intended. And He represents us. Adam, if you remember, Adam was the representative of the human race. Adam did something, we all were affected by it. That's what a representative is. Well, Jesus is called the second Adam. He perfectly represents 
God. He perfectly represents the image of God. When Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again, we're told He's now crowned with glory and honor. He's now carrying out that prerogative. Jesus became like us to help us. Down in verse 17, it says, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What did a high priest do? A high priest represented the people before the Lord. People didn't make their own sacrifices. I I can understand why reading the Old Testament at times can be boring. And you can be like, what is the point of this? Well, look at what happens. People didn't make their own sacrifices. People didn't come into the sanctuary themselves. A priest did this on their behalf. And if you ever wonder about the funny clothes of of the high priest, like he had this, this breastplate and there was these... Um, these stones, 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. When he wore that and he went into the holy place, he was going in as their representative. You see, we didn't elect Jesus to be our representative. He saw our need. He came to represent us before God. I don't know if you know this, but in the United States House of Representatives, the, the representatives have to be a resident of the state that they're representing, but they don't have to be a representative of the district. That's for the U.S. House of Representatives. But the Florida, Florida State House of Representatives, those have to be residents of the district. They have to be from among the people that they are representing, And the point that's being made here in Hebrews is similar. It's like, yeah, Jesus is coming from the people that He's representing. He had to come all the way in. He had to be a resident human. He had to become man in order to fulfill where Adam fell and where David failed and where we fail and where we have no hope of succeeding. He came, He became a man so that He could die, so that He could die the death that we deserve. Jesus became like us to help us. And one of the ways He helps us is by representing us. That's the first point. And the second point in verses 10 through 18 is that He helps us by rescuing us. Jesus rescues us. You see, we were worse off than that woman stuck on that enclosed ski lift Jesus fully entered humanity to save us. How did He save us? How did He do this? Well, verse 9 tells us by the suffering of death. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." Jesus didn't suffer for His own sake. He didn't die for His own sins. It was for our sake. 
our sin required that somebody be punished. Someone, get this, someone must bear the wrath of God for every single sin ever committed. Someone must bear God's wrath. I know the world doesn't teach this. I know that it's not instinctive for people to believe that sin is a big deal, but you read page after page in the Bible and you come to the same conclusion. Wow, sin is a big deal. The flood proclaims sin is a big deal. All the people dying at the hand of God proclaims, yes, sin is a big deal. That God would create a place called hell proclaims to us, oh, he takes sin really, really seriously. It's a big deal. The fact that he would send his son to die on the cross for sin proclaims that sin is a big deal. So either we bear the punishment for our own or Jesus takes it for us in our place. And so verse, verse 10 says, and it uses this word that I think is a massive understatement, it was fitting for him. Yes. Yes, it was fitting. He, he came to rescue us and it was fitting for him to die for us and to suffer for us. It also tells us in that same verse that he brings us to glory It says, in bringing many sons to glory, he should suffer and die for us. I mean, if you remember back in the Bible, Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. Jesus now brings people back. Church, to glory. To glory. When Jesus is called the founder of our salvation, that word founder there could also be translated like pioneer or author as a, as a founder, it's somebody who does something first, paves the way for others. Well, Jesus suffered, died, entered glory, and he paved the way to bring many with him. He's the founder. He's the pioneer. He's done it, and he's bringing others with him. Now, last year, I, I read a book about uh, a party the Donner Party. It was a group of people that went along the Oregon Trail from, I think, Illinois all the way. They were headed to California. It was a group, about 100 people. So lots of wagons, lots of families. And there was one guy in that group of 100 people who had done the trail before. He was essentially the pioneer. Well, he dies on the trip. And the people get lost. And then winter sets in, and they start dying off, and very few of them ever made it. I mean, this this man was their pioneer. They needed him. You know, there are days, church, when following Jesus doesn't look that great. And the storms of life are looming large on us. Well, our pioneer succeeded. And he promises, I'm going to bring you all the way there to glory, to be with him, to be back in. It says he's going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That's how he rescues us. Verse 11 tells us that he helps rescue us by making us holy. 
Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, to sanctify means to make something or someone holy. And the he who sanctifies, that refers to Jesus. Those who are sanctified refers to Christians. So let's put that together. Jesus is the one who makes people holy, and we're made holy in connection with him. This is what he's about. So the writer, he's already laid out three phases of this rescue, past, present, and future. He starts by looking in the past. Jesus suffered and died for our sins. He rescues us from the penalty of sin. And then he looks to the future. He says, he's going to bring us to glory. Then he looks to the present. How is he rescuing us in the present? He's making us more holy. He's helping us put to death sin. Put to death selfishness and anger and pride and lust. And put on instead holiness and peace and love and patience. You see, this is, this is a full rescue that he is doing. And then the passage goes on. Jesus helps rescue us by making us family. Verse 11 again. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all, has one, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So the writer quotes three Old Testament passages meant to show that Jesus saves, the people Jesus saves, are his brothers, sisters, his children, his people. You see, there's two ways to help orphans. You can either send help or you can make them your family. And God makes us His family. Jesus comes and says, yeah, these, these are my brothers. And, and this is just such a tender and sweet act. Who would think that because of our sin and because of Him as a holy God that He would ever consider us I mean, when I read there, it says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. I'm thinking he has every reason to be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And yet he brings us in. Remember the, the situation into which this book was written. These people were experiencing persecution and difficulty. They were facing imprisonment, having their stuff plundered just because they were Christians. Some might be thinking, this is a bum deal. I I didn't sign up for this. I, I didn't want to be the punching bag of the world. And he, writer, draws their attention and says, Jesus has made you family. Couldn't be closer. Couldn't be more secure, more protected, more love. Your sins are dealt with. He's going to bring you home to glory. 
The suffering you're experiencing is not the end of the story. He's making you more and more like Jesus, making you holy, and He's made you family. What a comfort. If Jesus in chapter 1 is called the heir of all things, He's like the eldest, the firstborn. So He, he gets 100% of the inheritance. And guess what He chooses to do? He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Let's adopt lots and lots of people and let me share everything with them. Do you know of any single child who has 100% of the inheritance, who says, Dad, Mom, let's adopt lots and lots of kids. I want to share everything with them. Now, usually there's that thinking, uh, we, we deal with inheritance of, oh, no, 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 we don't want that to go to the wrong person. We don't want to go to somebody who's undeserving, somebody who shows up at the last minute to the family. And that's what Jesus does. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. He partakes of what the children partake of so that He could bring us into the family of God. It's staggering, church, the generosity in these verses. But that, that's not all. Jesus helps rescue us by destroying death and the devil. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The word help there twice in verse 16, it refers to a a certain type of help. It means to take hold of someone and bring them out. So it's that kind of help. It's not like, it's not like help with your math homework. It's like help that a fireman grabs a, burning, uh, uh, grabs a baby out of a burning house kind of help. That's the picture here. Jesus, through his own death, took us out of the power of Satan and out of the power of death. So that that fear no longer drives us. Did you notice that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the very first experience or, or, or evidence of that sin is when they heard God, it says they were afraid. It's the first evidence after the fall was fear. I mean, fear has been around a long time. Fear is so prevalent. You think about fear of death. I mean, how much time, attention, money, concern do we have trying to escape death? It preoccupies people. And perhaps you're here today and fear is you're just realizing, boy, that's me. I, I am driven by fear. Jesus came to rescue us out of everything that might drive fear. He destroys the devil and he destroys death. So what can harm us? That's his point to these Christians. Now, some of these Christians that he's writing to, that the book of Hebrews is written to, may experience death on account of their walk with the Lord. It was getting really bad. And he says, you have no reason to be afraid. 
Jesus rescues us out of that. Jesus became like us to rescue us. So even if Satan rages, even if Christians are killed for their faith, take heart. Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. That's those who believe. And then Jesus helps rescuing us by making atonement for sin. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, another plug for reading the Old Testament. This is just soaked in Old Testament imagery. Propitiation literally means a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the the blood of the Day of Atonement sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. It was the only day he would go in there, and he would go and meet with, present the blood of the sacrifice before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it was this box made of gold or wood covered in gold, and it had this top piece with cherubim on it. That piece was called the mercy seat. Well, the same word is what is being used here as propitiation. It's the place that atonement is made, that wrath is appeased. Jesus is that place. Jesus is the high priest who brings in the sacrifice, and Jesus is the sacrifice Himself. And so get the logic of verse 17 here. If Jesus was not made like us, He couldn't atone for us. Do you see that? Verse 17 says he had to be made like his brothers. And that's a strong had. Like literally it means obligated. If our sins were going to be atoned for, God had to send Jesus. Jesus was obligated to be made like us in every respect. Now, you step back for a moment and you think, wait, God could have created the world any way He wanted. He could have decided to not create. He could have decided to not save. He was under no obligation, but He created in a way, and He chose to save in a way, and laid out promises in a way where He put Himself on the hook, so to speak. He obligated Himself, which is just so strange because most people don't feel obligated to God. He's got to take it or leave it. And God obligates Himself to send His Son that He might be made like us in every respect. A merciful and faithful high priest. I mean, what, what a Savior that He does this. And then lastly, verse 18, and this is where the passage is moving. Jesus became like us to help rescue us from temptation. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. When Jesus was with His Father in heaven before He came, He had never known suffering. He had never known a moment of temptation. He was made like us so that He could experience both suffering 
and temptation so that He could help us in our suffering and temptation. So no matter what temptations or sins you face, this is what it means. He knows. He was tempted. He's not aloof. So we talk about Jesus being so high, so holy, people are like, I don't know how he could ever relate to me because he's perfect. But like all the temptations that we face, he knows. Anxiousness, yeah, he knows. Sexual temptation, he knows. Bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, selfishness, rebellion to authority. He wasn't just tempted like we are, but he suffered when tempted is what the verse says. He knows. Jesus became like us to help us. He did that so He could represent us. He did that so that He could rescue us. You see, the the humanity of Jesus is abundantly applicable to our lives. One person, Sinclair Ferguson, he put it this way. He says, there is no time... When we could say to Jesus, we could go to Jesus and say, you don't know the rejection, pressure, failure that I'm feeling. Or another writer, Michael Kruger, he puts it, no one could ever go to Jesus and say, you don't understand my life. Because Jesus became like us to help us, He does know and He does understand and He's able to help us. And actually, the, the chapters that are coming in Hebrews are going to unpack this help and His solidarity with us even further. If I could invite the worship team to please return. I want to give you here at the end perhaps a, a way to think about these opening chapters of Hebrews and just allow them to, to marinate in our hearts for a bit. You could think about these opening chapters in Hebrews as a series of two-word commands, all right? Uh, Hebrews 2 opens with the command, pay attention. So since God spoke by His Son, pay attention to Him. Next week, we'll see in Hebrews 3 another two-word command, consider Jesus. Jesus came. He came all the way into our humanity. That's what we heard this morning. So consider Him. This is what bears us up when we feel like quitting. We're to contemplate. We're to think about the Lord Jesus in His humanity. Consider Jesus. And then Hebrews 4 gives us another two-word command. Draw near. Draw near. When we recognize that Jesus became like us to help us, what's the appropriate response? Draw near to Him. So pay attention. Consider Jesus. Draw near. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, Jesus became like us 
to help us. Let us pay attention to Him. Let us consider Him. And let us, in so doing, draw near to Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, all of this is just an undeserved invitation. And man, we marvel and say, what a Savior. And Lord, any and all temptations that are represented here this morning, we thank You that You can and have come and are able to help us. Lord, any and all loneliness that is experienced, You know exactly what it's like. We're we're not alone. And I pray, Lord, that the, the humanity of Jesus that we've seen on display in all of these ways, representing and rescuing us, Lord, would, would come crashing into this week for us. Every moment we're tempted, every moment we feel alone, every moment we say, I need help to know that we have the help we need. Help us to consider Jesus and then help us to draw near together regularly, knowing that we receive mercy and grace, the help in time of need. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.